Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the analysis.news podcast. Don't forget, we need you to click the donate button if you haven't already, because without your support, we can't do this. So after the shit show debate and the ongoing warnings of a second or even third wave of the pandemic, I'm left with some questions. First of all, does the shit show debate reflect an even more profound problem with the U.S. economy and political structures? Two, the financial and tech elites, how are they responding to the campaign, the debate? Have they bailed on the maniac or just doubling down on the Senate? How deep and how long will the recession, depression go? It looks like there could be more lockdowns. Four, if there is another full lockdown, which many scientists are saying will be necessary to contain the second, third wave, what, if any, are the limits of how much money the Fed can pump into the economy? What are the economic limits? What are the political limits? Six, how serious is the split over the new Fed money? Does Wall Street want a big new stimulus package? Are there really serious concerns about the U.S. dollar? And finally, seven, if we have time to get to it, is Wall Street getting the danger of the climate crisis? Will they do anything about it? Will they accept the government intervening in a serious way with regulations and massive investments in green infrastructure, including phasing out fossil fuel, not just relying on carbon capture, which is mostly what the Biden plan is about? Now joining me to break this down are two guests that are not only brilliant analysts of all this, but they also have unique access to the minds of the lords of Wall Street. First of all, Rana Faruhar, who is a business columnist and an associate editor at the Financial Times. She's also CNN's global economic analyst, and her books include Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business, and Don't Be Evil, How Big Tech Betrayed Its Founding Principles. And returning, Mark Blythe is a political economist at Brown University. He researches the causes of stability and change in the economy. And as he told me, why people continue to believe stupid economic ideas despite buckets of evidence to the contrary. So, Rana, let me ask you. So, first of all, your reaction to the debate and, and, and the bigger question, what does this tell us about the disarray in American politics? And, and why is there? Is there something going on in the U.S. economy and basic political structures that kind of give rise to this craziness? Well, um, thank you, Paul, for having me. And first, let me tune my earpiece so I can hear the Lords of Finance um, uh, speaking to me. <laughs> I um, I. I was stunned by the debate. I mean, on one level, at the most surface level, the debate was just kind of this toxic, mudslinging, wrestling match. You know, you've likened it to uh, Trump's debating style in general to, to pro wrestling. I think that's true. But I guess I would take a step back and say, all right, how did we get to a place where, frankly, anybody watching would be embarrassed as I was to be an American, although thankfully I have dual passports. Um, but it's, he's a symptom. I mean, we, we cannot forget that. He's certainly done a lot of horrible things that I'm sure we'll dive into, but he's a symptom of what I consider to be a problem in the political economy in the U.S. that's been going on in its current form really, you know, for 40 years. Um, and I would, I would peg that as the, the neoliberal shift, the Reagan-Thatcher revolution, the sort of movement to a privatization of everything, but more particularly 
to the embracing of a kind of globalization and economic paradigm that that holds that capital, labor, and goods can all move freely and equally across the world. Well, capital can do that. Money can do that. Big companies can do that. Um, people and goods can't do that so easily. And, and that's one of the reasons why we got many of the things that helped to bring Donald Trump to office, um, the hollowing out of the Rust Belt, the embracing of a set of um, neoliberal economic principles by both sides of the aisle. Um, you know, there was not a lot of air, as I wrote in my first book, between certain um, policies around trade and, and financial regulation uh, within the Clinton administration as they were, as there, there was during um, the Reagan period. So there's a kind of a sense that both sides of the aisle um, had sold out the American working class that's leading up to 2016, you have this um, con man in the form of Trump coming in and, and he really does, to my mind, he, he's the perfect Melville con man character because he takes this sort of felt experience that people do have of, of, of hypocrisy on both sides of the political aisle and then it just wraps it in this sort of welter of lies and somehow presents himself as an outsider. Well, four years on, we see just how much of an entitled insider he is. Um, and I think that the gig is up. I think the New York Times tax revelations put him under a lot of pressure. I think you, what you saw in that debate was a man cracking. Um, and I'll stop there and let Mark take over, but there's a lot more to say. Go ahead, Mark. I'm not sure I've got anything to add to that. I, I pretty much agree with all of that. What would I add to this? Um, so first of all, let me fess up. I never watched the debates. Nothing new. No, well, something that Nassim Taleb taught me years and years and years ago was if anything truly important happens, don't watch the TV or read the newspapers. Three people will tell you all about it in excruciating detail the minute you wake up. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. So once I learned this, I just like, I'm not watching this, right? But nonetheless... Let me put a little gloss on what Rana has said there. There was a RAND report. Now, RAND aren't exactly bleeding heart liberals, as we know. <laughs> and they did a report about 10 days ago that said, if you kept all the taxes that were in place in 1980 and all the regulations and all those bad things we got and done away with, there wouldn't have been a huge siphoning to the top. Now, we know this, but they put a dollar figure on it. The dollar figure was $50 trillion of wealth that has been generated and handed effectively to the maybe top 3% of the country. That is the biggest transfer of wealth in history. That's what has gone on. Now, behind this, something else I'll add, and this is something that uh, Rana gets into in, in her uh, book on tech, is that if you look across industries, profits are becoming more concentrated, particularly in certain sectors. And the rest of the economy, in a sense, lives off the crumbs of the contracts of these giant firms which is why, in part, we have so few uh, good jobs being developed, so many people working multiple jobs, the explosion of part-time contract, platform labor, et cetera, et cetera. Now, why do I mention all this as a gloss? Because ultimately, the real puzzle of the debates is why he still has 40%. Hmm. And he has 40% because, unfortunately, the future is not going to be kind to the left behind. He identified that constituency in 2015 and said, I am your voice. He then seamlessly went down to the border towns, called everyone sort of a rapist and a murderer and, and assembled another coalition and bolted that together. But for the people who we have ourselves said, yep, you definitely got sold out by neoliberalism. Yes, you definitely got screwed by your corporate elites, etc." It's not as if it's going to get any better, whether it's through the green transition, if it ever happens, whether it's through the fact that manufacturing jobs are disappearing everywhere, they're not coming back. 
So in a sense, what he's doing is he's doubling down on the only base he's got, and they're doubling down on him. And that is all about mobilization and anger and generating that anger and keeping it going. And if necessary, and this is the important part, chucking the system over a bridge in order to safeguard that result. Hmm. Uh, Rana, go ahead. Well, it's interesting. Um, I agree with with much of what Mark said. I guess I feel, just almost for the sake of argument, I'm going to be a little more optimistic and say that I have been actually impressed um, with the way in which Biden, not that he was able to get any of this across in the debate, but I know, you know, being talking to policymakers, the way he's been able to bring a pretty wide variety of people under the tent in such a way that I do feel economically that folks within the Democratic Party on very different sides of, of issues are starting to talk to each other in ways that they weren't before. So you still have that kind of, you know, Summers Rubin center of the party, you know, in these conversations. But you also have Jared Bernstein, you have Heather Boucher, you have you have a lot of people that are um, certainly farther to the left and, and have different ideas. I've also been impressed with how Biden has started, and this is very, very nascent, but I think it's important, started to kind of connect some of the part of the party that's more concerned traditionally with identity and some that is more concerned about class and labor. And this has been a big dividing point for Democrats, that you've had um, a new and exciting generation generation of, say, millennial socialist politicians like the AOCs of the world that you know, they're kind of interested in the economy. They know something bad's going down, but really identity is their thing. And they're, 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 um, communicating with their own social media followings along those lines. There's a lot about race and gender. To me, that's always been a sideshow and a distraction for the democratic party. Not that there aren't issues of race, uh, to be talked about, but that the, the real action is in class. But of course that's harder for traditionally for the Democratic Party to get up because they have the same big corporate donors, you know, not always the same, but many of the same big corporate donors as the right. Um, And you have the legacy of the Clintonian wing of the party that really didn't want to go there. Now you see Biden taking something like the idea of a Green New Deal, you know, which came out of AOC's part of the part of the camp. But instead of just going off and doing it alone, like she did, or with the environmental wing of the party, he's bringing labor under the tent. He's talking to the AFL-CIO and saying, all right, how could we potentially get um, coal miners involved in retrofitting solar panels? Now, I know this stuff all sounds very spiffy and and snazzy, and it's hard to do. I, I don't want to underplay that. But I think just the way in which I start to see these aspects of the party coming together is a little bit of a cause for optimism for me. Well, just to throw in a little less cause for optimism, and in some ways, maybe in other ways it is, but it seems to me this is more a tactical uh, alliance to defeat Trump and that there's really far greater and more profound differences in in the different sections of the party that everyone's just deciding deciding to be more or less quiet about for now. Mm-hmm. Uh, like if you, even if you take Biden's climate uh, plan, uh, if I actually we, I went through it with Robert Poland, the economist, mm-hmm. and it's really something when you when you really dig into what he's proposing, it's it's all based on carbon capture. Not mm. reducing the use of fossil fuel, except mo- very modestly, with you know, in terms of auto carbon emissions, which aren't—it's not nothing, but it's not going to get us where we need to get to. But the reliance on on a very un 
proven science of carbon capture and, and very little to almost no talk of phasing out fossil fuel. There's talk of phasing out fossil fuel subsidies, mm-hmm. but not phasing out fossil fuel. So uh, it seems to me that, yeah, there's, there's a, certainly a poss- at least a possibility for a real debate assuming Biden wins with these different sections of the party. But I think the differences are pretty profound when it comes down to what the actual policy is going to be. Mark, what do you, what do you make? So, so let me put a sort of a middle course between these two points. Um, uh, my question to Rana would be this. I agree with what you just said, but the key thing to me is, are they talking outside of the party and are people listening? So I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you a piece of anecdata. I got a couple of friends who are tradesmen and I won't identify them by telling you which trade. But I said to him, how many of your buddies and you are going to vote Democrat? And he yeah. just looked at me and burst out laughing. And I said, why? Why is that? And he says, you know what Democrats mean to me? This is a direct quote. Black lives, trans rights, and the environment. Interesting. They don't give a shit about people like me. Right? That is how this is perceived, right? Now, you know, this goes to the heart of the sort of the decarbonization, very, very narrow road that, try, that Biden is trying to negotiate here and the Democrats in general are trying to negotiate. We have to take a fundamental reality here that there are at least 13 states in the union, starting with Alaska, going south down through New Mexico, ending up in Louisiana, going up to West Virginia, where the transportation refinement uh, and otherwise processing of carbon and its derivatives is what they do. Mm. And in order to actually execute any type of decarbonization strategy, you're going to have to bribe the living hell of every resident of those states. Which is which is what they should do. Only way of doing it, right? So, but, but instead of which, what we do is we're internal politics in the party determine that we talk about the just transition, and we mustn't reward these carbon polluters. Well, you have to deal with the fact that if you don't actually get some of them on board, you're never going to win another election. I'm so glad that you made that point, Mark, because um, I hear that too. And I had a I had an interesting trip um, about a year and a half ago around the Carolinas looking at supply chains and textiles there. And I met a number of um, small um, and mid-sized sort of private business owners, a number of workers, um, um, a lot of white workers in the in the agricultural industry there. You know, honorable people couldn't stand Trump as a person, particularly those that identify with the military or veterans at all, um, but voted for him. Why? Because they understand the hypocrisy of what the Democratic cell has been since the 90s, which is basically, okay, China, if you let us um, give you banking services, we will send you all of our manufacturing jobs and outsource our innovation ecosystem to you. It's amazing how clear crystal clear, um, uh, someone working in a cotton gin is on that point. And I do think that Democrats still have uh, a long ways to go at getting woke to those issues, as woke as they are to to some other issues. But I also think that there are two things that are going to work, again, not immediately, but over the long haul in making that transition. One is that COVID-19 has basically just put on steroids all of the problems of neoliberalism um, because, you know, we talked about 
um, this myth that capital, goods, and people can all travel equally across borders. Well, we know capital can jump. Well, in the digital economy, data is the new oil. It's the resource that everything is, is driven by. It can go across borders even more easily than capital. We are in the middle of time warping a transition into the digital economy that was we kind of knew was going to take about 15, 20 years. We're now going to wake up in, in two to five years all that disruption that we've all been talking about in previous podcasts and saying, well, in about 10 years, X, Y, and Z will happen. That's going to happen. And here's what it's going to look like. Sure, there's a bunch of new businesses that are going to be formed out of this. They're going to need less people and they're going to invest less. That means we're going to get a jobless recovery, and I put recovery in quotation marks, of a sort that is going to be entirely new. Um, The math, the basic math is the U.S. is a 70% consumer spending economy. We have had a problem with middle class um, income stagnation for 20 years. We've had a problem with working class income stagnation for over 40 years. That's going to be put on steroids. And I think that that is going to create the kind of alliances that, interestingly, you already see forming in the Black Lives Matter movements. One of the reasons, I'll tell you that my my white upper middle class daughter is out there marching in those those um, those protests is not just because she's concerned about racial justice, which she is, but she's concerned about her own economic future. And this is a privileged child, but she's looking out and saying, oh my God, what kind of college debt am I going to have? What's the labor market going to look like? What are humans going to be able to do as opposed to robots? And I think that all that just got sped up in a way that is going to push some of these transitions. Mark? Uh, I agree. And I'll push it even further. The digital transition is absolutely underway, and we see this in the geopolitics of the moment. We spoke about it a couple of years ago at tech conferences. We called it the splinter web. You either have a payments platform or you don't. You either have a way of protecting your data or you don't. And what we see now is particularly the EU's response. They finally woke up to the fact that they have no digital platforms at scale. They're massively behind. They're selling 21st, 20th century products like diesel engines to a world that no longer want them. And what are they doing? They're doing data protection. It's a protectionist move. We are basically about to sue our big corporates. Why? Because we're disciplining them. China has already created the great firewall in the East and has corralled their companies. So the world splits up into these smaller areas. And it's much easier for the right rather than the left to weaponize this as a kind of nationalist and geopolitical struggle of which this is a part There's a very 19th century rendition of this whereby the container of hopes for civil protection always lies with the nation state. And the weakness that neoliberalism's always had is is assumed a subject and and a set of interests that moves beyond the nation state. Mm -hmm. That has never really happened and is now in a way happening in such a way that it is creating both those alliances that you're talking about, but it's also creating a kind of very dangerous nationalist revisionism at the same time. In the 1930s, in the midst of deep depression and the uh, sort of unraveling of capitalism as as it was in 1920, 1930, and all the things that went into the crash, uh, there were kind of two possible uh, ways that elites would respond, and much of the European elite and 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 much of the American elite wanted some form of authoritarianism, uh, fascism, uh, suppress the uh, resistance and rebellion amongst the workers and uh, other parts of the population that were dispossessed by the uh, crisis. Or you had an alternative, which was mostly in the U.S., uh, FDR, New Deal, and such. Biden claims he wants to uh, be the most progressive administration since FDR. 
Um, I don't see that in what he's really proposing as a policy. But that said, um, where where are the American elites on this? The financial, the tech elites. Uh, th- these are really smart people. Uh, <laughs> frank, frankly, they're a lot smarter, I think, than their counterparts in the 1930s. They're very informed. The, the leading ones got there because they were the best at more or less what what they do, even if what they do is not so good. But they're smart. Um, don't do they get? that this is not the same kind of, this isn't just about a business cycle. This is about several existential problems, climate Mm. uh, from the tech side, like a jobless recovery. Uh, This is, you know, this is big time when we're talking out 10, 20, 30 years where, where AI and robots may go. Um, The, uh, this pandemic is, is far from over and it's probably one of many more to come. Uh, th- there needs to be a real shift in 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 how power is exercised, the role government plays. And I, I was reading BlackRock. I follow BlackRock a lot. You got Larry Fink talking about climate change, and he's very aware of the threat of climate. But the obvious conclusion from everything Larry and BlackRock says about climate is you need serious government government intervention, but that's the one thing they don't want. Well, you're getting at something really important, which, and this drives me crazy, frankly. Um, I wrote a column about how in the context of of education, which is, it seems tangential, but is actually connected to what you're saying about climate change. um, Corporations are always kvetching that, oh, we need the government to train up a better 21st century workforce, and then we could create jobs. Oh, we need the government to do something about climate, and then we'll have certainty and we can invest. Um, guess what? You've been cutting the tax share of the government, of the public sector, by offshoring and optimizing, as they say, um, taxes in a global race to the bottom as the private sector has gained power and wealth relative to the public sector for four decades now. So, you know, you, you've tied the hands of the politicians. Um, you've decimated the middle class, which would elect better politicians. So here we are. Um, so I, I absolutely hate that hypocrisy. And I just uh, I think it's um, I think it's egregious when when business leaders complain in that way. I always try and turn the point around if I'm on TV and ask them about taxes and uh, and, and how much they pay. But um, to go back to your first point about do the elites get it? Yeah, they absolutely get it. And let me give you a couple of examples. They get it and they think they're going to be able to weather this storm. Um, you know, Eric Schmidt, um, former chairman of Google, wrote a book with the head of his um, uh, think tank a few years back. And the book basically, reading between the lines, said, you know what? Uh, they tried to put a sunny, sunny slogan on it, but the, the message was technology, this tech revolution we're going through, which is, you know, as, as Neil Ferguson has written, is kind of like the advent of the printing press. It, you know, makes things better ultimately, but you get 150 years of religious wars before that. Um, That's what Schmidt said in his book with Jared Cohen. He said, look, tech's going to make things better in the long run, but in the short run, things are going to be really crazy. There's going to be huge nationalism, conflict. They didn't come out and quite say it this way, but this was the upshot. But the idea was in their minds that the biggest companies, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Baidus, the Alibabas had become so big that they were like the East India Company. Now they are sort of sovereign um, uh, 
international states that float above the nation state, as Mark was pointing out, and that they actually um, kind of form their own consensus. You know, you've got the Washington consensus, the Beige, maybe the Beijing consensus. We don't quite know what that is yet. And then you've got the Facebook consensus. And the elites essentially, I think, believe that these corporations now have so much control and big tech does have way more control even than big finance did um, because it can actually influence our behavioral patterns because of surveillance capitalism and um, algorithmic behavioral manipulation. They have so much control that they believe that they can move the levers now and simply weather this storm and come out to the other side of it. Um, so, so that's where they are. There's really no wall anymore uh, or distance between big finance and big tech. Right. Is there? I mean, big tech is very financialized and more so if you look at who owns big tech, it's essentially the big financial institutions are the biggest shareholders other than some individuals that you know help start the things. Well, I think it's a little deeper even than sh- cross shareholding because, you know, the biggest three shareholders in Google are still the top Googlers, um, Larry Page, um, uh, Sergey Brin and, and uh, Eric Schmidt. But what I think is so interesting is I think about it in terms of information asymmetry. So you go way back to Adam Smith, you know, father of modern capitalism, and, and he would have said that in order for any market system to function properly and fairly, you need to have an understanding on both sides from buyers and sellers of what the transaction actually is. Well, as we well know from the great financial crisis and, and any number of debacles before that, you know, most of the time when you're dealing with a big financial institution, they've got more information than you. That's why they're always winning. It's like, you know, the casino, the house always wins. Well, put that again on steroids in the era of big tech, because the major tech companies as of yet, except in small ways in places like France or Australia that are insisting on algorithmic auditing, they have total control of the black box in which the transactions in our increasingly digital world live. We don't even know what we're buying and selling. I mean, I'm giving data uh, and I have no idea what I'm getting back for it. I think I'm getting something free in quotation marks, uh, a search, uh, the ability to do some silly social uh, platform media thing. But what am I giving up? A whole hell of a lot. And it's it's more when it gets combined with other people's data. Uh, Mark, where, where do you think the financial preponderance of financial and big tech elites are on this election campaign? And how much control do they have about in the outcome? Well, again, I'm not going to differ very much from what Rana just said at all. Um, I'm not going to quote Smith, I'll quote Keynes. Hasn't Eric, didn't Eric Schmidt ever read Keynes in the long run? We're all dead. <laughs> I mean, the, the long run is a succession of short runs, which if they are shitty enough, ends up, it sums to a not long run. So that's an incredibly dangerous way of thinking about it. To me, I'll, I'll tell you a little story I used to do when I did finance conferences with big finance. It's sort of, you know, you'd have 25 of them in the room, all the sort of the, the, the big money in the room. And I would say the following, talking about politicians and the quality of political capital, it's gone down over time and that's a big problem, blah, blah, blah. And it's all right. So how many of you folks would let the people that you run countries by funding them run money in your firm? And they would all burst out laughing. And then when the laughter died down, I would say, and now you can tell me what's funny about that, because ultimately your firms are dependent on the governance of those countries, the public goods that they provide. And there was almost a moment of shame where they went, oh, shit. And this points to something that our Marxist colleagues have known for the longest time, that while it's rational for any individual capitalist to maximize their short-run interests, it's collectively suicidal if they all do. 
there is no ideal collective capitalist looking at the long run. No matter how big you are, your most rational strategy is to grab what you can because you don't control enough to make sure that you can dictate the final outcome. So that leads to this general suboptimality of choices, which manifests itself in everything from taxes to uh, green to decarbonization across a whole series of areas. Now, are they aware of this? Yes, they are. They all understand it perfectly well. Do they have a solution? Yes, they do. Basically, the government should step up. And that's never going to be allowed to happen. Indeed. And, you know, it's it's fascinating. I think that's why, just to turn it to the markets for a minute, I think that's why there's this weird, bizarro world where essentially 50% of the biggest players in the global markets are in gold and the other 50% are in stocks. Well, what is that about? Gold is, we basically think the world's falling apart and it is going to be the 1930s again. Stocks are, you know, we think that central bankers can keep this party going a little bit longer and we're going to stay here um, until the music is almost stopped playing. And it's just fascinating that there's nothing in between right now. Yeah, that's a really, really great observation. That's exactly right. If there is uh, a bigger necessary lockdown, um, if the pandemic not isn't well, first of all, it's already a, the depression's already pretty deep and not recovering that quickly. But uh, the scientists I'm reading, uh, epidemiologists and such, think that we're really at the beginning of another big wave that might even be worse than the previous one. Even Fauci has said that. Uh, some are saying the only way. And this might, if Biden's president, be what's put to him. The only way of really dealing with this is maybe another two-month national shutdown and, and, and mask regulation and such. Um, how, how much financial support uh, can the Fed do? Uh, right now, the politics has kind of paralyzed it. But how big can it go? Are there limits, economic limits, to how much money the Fed can pump into the economy? Uh, are there what the political limits that might we see now? They might change, I guess, depending on the outcome of the election. Uh, Mark, you go first. It's not that I'm a science skeptic on this, but I think that what we tend to do is take whatever the public health authorities say at a given moment and project it forward as the facts forgetting that basically everyone revises their opinion on what's going on every two weeks. So I don't think that that's a good thing. The most interesting thing for me just now is the fact that Andy Haldane, who's the chief economist of the Bank of England and all-around very smart person, is actually very bullish on the recovery for a host of reasons, in contrast to most of the people around them. And another really interesting one is, again, the data from Sweden. Sweden is picked up in the U.S. press either to show that we all need to wear masks or if, or to alternatively to show that you don't need to wear masks. If you actually look at what they're doing and what's happening, is very interesting. Their death rates are down to the single digits and are not moving. There's no big up spike in death, but there are in infections. And this makes perfect sense if you think that the host, if the goal of a virus is to replicate, it can't be too deadly. They tend to attenuate their effects over time, which is why they can become sort of endogenous to the population and survive, but in a less deadly form. So I'm very hesitant to say this is what's going to happen and that's what's going to happen. Because if we took, honestly, snapshots of what was the consensus every month since March, the, the plot charts coming out of that would be massively different all over the place. So with that in mind, is there any limit to what the Fed can do? 
Well, so long as 60% of invoicing and 50% of global reserves are in dollars, so long as the German and other export-led trade models depend upon the recycling of dollar earnings through the bond markets of the United States, so long as interest rates are at a 700-year low, which seems to be a, a, not an aberration, but the real sort of mean reversion in the system, so long as we can't generate inflation to save our lives because we've basically created hyperflexibility in labor markets and product markets on a global scale, then shit, yeah, you can just continue. <laughs> you really can. I mean, Sebastian Malaby has a piece in this in Foreign Affairs last episode, like two, two um, issues ago called The Era of Magic Money. And I think that he's right. I actually have a piece coming out saying why he's right, but he's not entirely right, because a lot of this has to do with the Fed essentially giving markets a free option every seven to 10 years and making the problem worse. But nonetheless, can we continue to do this? Absolutely. We totally can do this. So long as there's no inflation in the system and you're not going to get a very high spike in interest rates, and I can't imagine why you would see either of those, then you're going to continue to do this, which is part of the reason why half the market is in gold. Because that's a perfectly rational response to a low inflation, low rates world that you think is fragile. Um, yeah, hundred percent. It's so interesting. Um, two things to say in response to Mark. First of all, if, if Andy Haldane believes it, I'm I'm inclined to believe it too. I think he's the smartest policymaker around. Um, I I can already see the signs of a second wave in New York. Um, I don't know how it's going to play out, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna hold off on making a, a judgment call about that. But let me. Let me say a little bit about central banks and what they can and can't do. I think that um, if we had a Biden administration, for example, and you had uh, him immediately reaching across the aisle, reaching across the ocean, kind of repairing some of our relationships with allies, um, basically rolling back some of the really stupid stuff that Trump has done. The, and and also um, rolling out some kind of reasonable fiscal plan to get us over the next two, one to two year hump of COVID, whatever whatever it is in the U.S. Then I think that central banks can probably do a lot because you have to you have to realize that um, it, it's somewhat about trust in the faith uh, uh, of the do, you know the good faith of, of the U.S. government and the dollar. And when you have Trump, that goes way down. When you have um, a trade war with China in which we don't have Germany and other European allies that have the same concerns on board, then that goes way down. Um, I think that if we have a volatile environment, then you've got maybe five years for the dollar to be able to act like, you know, have all the privileges of being the global currency. I think if you had smarter governance, you might have another 15 years of being able to have those privileges. But make no mistake, and this is where I think Americans in particular sometimes get a little arrogant, we always have these conversations like it's just about what we want to do. China has its own plan. It's It's got its own grand plan, industrial policy. It's rolling out digital RMB. It's got a um, its own sort of trade route that it's trying to develop. It's got its own relationships that it's it's um, developing with Middle Eastern oil producers, weakening the, the dollar oil peg. Um, Europe may come together. The euro may become some kind of um, more attractive alternative. All these things are now in flux. So you have this these vectors that have nothing to do with what's happening in the White House. And I think ultimately that will weaken the dollar um, relative to other currencies. 
And ultimately, I don't think that's a bad thing because one of the reasons that we have uh, the dysfunction that we do is that the dollar has this exorbitant privilege and allows us to behave incredibly badly in terms of debt. Wouldn't be a bad thing to correct that. I kind of hope it doesn't happen in two to five years in some disorderly way. Uh, There's one truth, I think, uh, if one accepts the science, and I think most rational people do, there's nothing more threatening to human society right now than the climate crisis. And with very few years left, apparently, to deal with, uh, we're, we're no doubt hitting 1.5. We're beyond not hitting it. We're maybe beyond uh, not hitting two degrees of warming uh, above pre-industrial averages. Um, and scientists are saying that if things keep going the way they are, uh, by the end of the century, we could not only be hitting four, but there's recent predictions of uh, even seven degrees. I mean, that's an unlivable earth. Even as you approach two and three degrees, much of the people living in the south have to head north, whether the people of the north want to build walls or not. Um, the the extent of the crisis is, is critical, and which most people who follow anything know. I don't see any solution to this without U.S.-China collaboration. Uh, It's not going to happen through contention if there isn't some serious global agreements on climate and not done in the context and atmosphere of the kind of rhetoric and threats that are going on now. And I don't see China isn't going to respond because of threats. And as much as, you know, Trump's anti-China uh, hysteria even, uh, you know, Steve Bannon, who I believe is probably still in Trump's ear, uh, is actually called for military confrontation in the South China Sea. Uh, Richard Haas from Foreign Affairs had an article recently where he says that the United States should give up its ambiguity on Taiwan and outright say that if China were ever to use military action uh, towards Taiwan, that the United States will respond militarily. Uh, I I mean, most people I've talked to that know people like Larry Wilkerson and others don't believe it's true that the United States actually would provoke because every war game they've ever played, Wilkerson says, ends in nuclear war. This, they've never played a war game that starts conventional and doesn't end nuclear. Um, but all that being said, there's no way to deal with climate without collaboration. And one thing that concerns me about Biden, again, reading his climate plan, his plan for reducing fossil fuel subsidies by governments which he says he'll do in the United States, but is to give the Belt and Road Initiative countries an alternative form of financing. And in other words, to fight China over these uh, alliances that China is building and, and whether that's a good idea for those countries or not. I don't know. That's a separate issue. But it's all couched in, in, in this uh, virulent anti-China rhetoric. So what is the underpinnings of this rivalry? Why is, you know, is some people argue this is because it justifies the massive military expenditure, which I think there's truth to, but is there more going on? Why, why is there this such underlying rivalry, which seems like it's going to make it impossible to collaborate on climate? I can jump in on that. Um, I think that there, you know, there was a belief um, in foreign policy circles and in economic circles um, that 
once China opened up and once they were brought into the WTO and the traditional structures, um, Bretton Woods structures, et cetera, that, that they would become um, more prosperous and m- move towards liberal democracy. I frankly, having been in and out of China for the last 20 years, never really saw that as a possibility. I <laughs> I just think it's really quite arrogant. I mean, old co- country, 5,000, 6,000 years of, of civilization kind of with its own ideas about things. Um, and so I was always... I was always curious that there weren't more CEOs and asset managers and there were certainly military tacticians that would have sounded this alarm and have, but saying, you know, what if it doesn't go that way? What if basically at some point China decides it is independent of Western technology, it can run its own supply chains, it is a giant single market, much like the US in the World War II period that can go it alone, then what? Well, here we are. And I think China would have given another five to 10 years before it made its move. But Trump kind of threw the bomb in the middle of the big hypocrisy of the one world, two systems paradigm. And uh, and so now we have decoupling that's not just on the U.S. side, but very much on the Chinese side. I had a fascinating conversation, actually, a couple of years ago with Kai-Fu Lee, who's a big Chinese venture capitalist. He helped start um, Google China. And he said, you know, we... Um, we hope this doesn't happen in the invest Chinese investment community, but we are prepared for there to be decoupling. And we believe that it will be easier for China to make up um, the what it, what it still needs within the supply chain and innovation ecosystem, which is not much. I mean, it kind of owns a lot of that ecosystem right now and just slap Chinese consumer brands on the top of it than it will be for America and the Western world to rebuild its entire supply chain um, because we kept the brands and all the IP, but we didn't keep that kind of manufacturing ecosystem. The military is obviously very worried about that. COVID has exposed the vulnerability of supply chains. So we're going there no matter what. I do not think that the whole Council on Foreign Relations, like let's get a big um, super committee together and come up with a, a set of agreements on climate change that, that China and the U.S. can agree with, that's not going to happen. Here's where I am somewhat optimistic. I think that it is possible for the world to become more regionalized, maybe a tripolar world, U.S., China, and Europe with kind of different um, uh, different strengths and, and ecosystems to exist, uh, to coexist. And in that model, I would look for optimism around climate change to come more from innovation, maybe state-driven innovation. China's done so much on wind and solar. Um, you know, I, I think if, if we did in the U.S. and, you know, Europe is doing this to a certain extent, did a big push um, to incentivize research and development in five, six, seven areas of technology, including clean tech, we could probably really do a lot. I mean, one small example, vertical farming. You probably never heard of this, but it's about to be huge. Um, this is basically the idea of growing food on walls that are um, controlled in minute ways by light and temperature. It means you don't have to ship uh, vegetables you know, across the country and have them lose um, 50% of their weight, which was water anyway, and have a bunch of emissions. I'm looking for things like that. When I think about climate change, I'm not looking for some big new grand bargain. Mark? So let's put a couple of things on the table. The background assumption here, whether you like uh, Biden's uh, climate policy or, or it's going to amount to more than a hill of beans, is that he's allowed to win. And it's not far from clear for me this is the case, because the, the tweeter-in-chief 
if he loses, will continue to mobilize, delegitimate, fractionalize, and polarize this country. With a set of forces that we began this shot by identifying have been 30 or 40 years in the making. So it's not clear that you're going to get a Biden victory or, or, or even the United States basically emerges from the next 12 months as a kind of credible and stable place to invest. Now, what the United States has done to make its money over the past 30 years has basically to invest in the protection of intellectual property rights. And by some estimates, about 80% of the value in global supply chains accrues directly to U.S. companies. The famous example being you make a $700 iPhone in China, but 50 bucks of the value remains in China, and the rest basically is remitted not to California, but to a series of tax havens. But nonetheless, most of it goes back to the American side. So that's why you invest in American stocks, because they grow faster, and they grow faster because of the IPR control. What is it that China wants to do? It wants to develop. It wants to become rich. What does that mean? It means it's coming for your IPRs. So there's a real conflict of interest between these two, if you will, global business models. Hang on a sec. Say it again in a little easier way to get. For the past 30 years, American firms have been globalizing, integrating, using global supply chain, moving stuff to China. But how they really make money is through the protection of their intellectual property rights. Think about Apple suing Samsung all the time. Think about the fact that when Apple sees a competitor or Google sees a competitor, it buys it. It doesn't like the competition. This gives them huge profit margins. And it also means they capture most of the value in these big global supply chains. And the way you protect this is with legal protections. Now, at the end of the day, China wants to develop. China wants to be rich. China basically doesn't really care that much about those legal protections and goes out of its way to either buy tech, acquire tech, steal tech, spy on tech, hence concerns at universities in the United States about uh, PRC, uh, Chinese army representatives in labs and so on and so forth. So not all of this is hysteria. There is a direct threat to the American business model, which is heavily dependent upon global supply chains and the protection of their intellectual property rights. This spills through to American capitalism at large because the reason you want to buy American stocks is because American stock markets grow faster than everyone else. Why? Because they have the companies that have these intellectual property rights that make the outsized profits. China is a direct threat to that. So there is conflict built into the system. In terms of cooperation, China will cooperate with the EU. If the United States continues to fractionalize politically, emerges basically as a kind of damaged quasi-autocracy that refuses to accept basic science on climate change. The world has already moved on in many ways. There will be exactly those types of state-backed investments and very large-scale projects that will take place in China and the EU and possibly between and across them. And they will be the ones that reap the returns on those new assets and those new inventions and those new intellectual property rights that everyone needs to deal with the already baked in effects of global warming. One example of how to think about this in closing, again, going back to these little finance talks that I would give from time to time, I would always say to financial audiences, I don't understand why you folks don't invest everything in green tech. And I would get these answers about, we don't know, it's incomplete, the government is exposing us to the risk, it's too big, etc. And I would say, but you don't understand, this is what bankers call a free option. And this is the one contract that you want. And here's how it works. If you don't invest and it doesn't work, you still die. If you invest half of what you've got wisely and one thing works and that helps, you're going to make more money than God. 
if everybody collectively thinks the same way, then we might just get out of this mess. But if you only look after your own interest, you are guaranteeing your own extinction. And again, it's that collective action problem at the base of capitalism. What's rational for any one firm to do or one country to do is oftentimes collectively disastrous. And that's what's going on. Well, that's a pretty good place to end, unless you want to add something, Rana. No, I think that's perfect. Do we have anything good to say? I mean, can we do like, you know, can we go, come on, is there any light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's good. That's good. I mean, I'm a huge on hydrogen. Who knew hydrogen was finally going to pay off? The EU's putting, I think it's $12 billion into hydrolyzers, right? The Russians are all over this. They can use their pipelines to pipe blue hydrogen all the way to Western Europe. Well, we need to do this again because the thing I'm about to say in some way starts a whole other conversation, but Mark instigated this. Um, this contradiction that you're talking about, how it makes sense for individual uh, tech and finance companies to pursue their short-term interests, but it's giving rise to you know chaos otherwise, which, uh, which in normal times, I guess you could say, there'd be time to evolve out of it. But given the time frame of climate, there's just no time. The, the, there needs to be something dramatic and radical quickly. If, if the U.S. descends into the worst case scenario, uh, I guess we're screwed. We will be hitting two and three degrees. And I guess we'll have to see what that looks like. But I think this, what you're what you're describing, Mark, is a is a kind of consciousness uh, a conclusion that's really growing, um, and it expresses itself. Uh, the pandemic has shown the uh, advantages to a public healthcare system that's run by government, and certainly, the, if you compare the res, the pandemic results in Canada to the United States, the public healthcare system has done significantly better than the American. Um, it's pointing to socialistic solutions in every way you look. I mean, that's really what the New Deal was. It, it strengthened socialistic characteristics of the capitalist economy. And of course, the right despises this because they think any strengthening of those characteristics wakes people up to the advantages of it, which may people may say, well, we don't just want public health care. We, maybe we should have public banking and it can go on from there. So I think we need to do another podcast about this. But Rana, why don't why don't you conclude for us? Well, you know, I would just build on what you said. I do think that that's another podcast. And the way I think of it is that, you know, there tend to be economic pendulum shifts every you know half century or so, give or take. Um, and we had a pendulum shift. If you look at the period leading up to the 1929 market crash in the 30s, that period in which, you know, the, the 10 years or so before, actually from the Spanish flu to 1929, okay, you had the Spanish flu first and then the market crash. We had a market crash and then the um, coronavirus. But the, that 10 years was similar in that you had basically underlying problems that then central bankers papered over with debt. Um, there was a huge asset bubble. There was a lot of technological change, shifting labor markets, demographic change, urbanization, um, lots of moving pieces. You eventually got uh, a debt bubble, a market crash, the 30s. And then from the 30s to the 70s, you had kind of another pendulum shift where there was a movement away from private sector power. There were certain curbs. You've got the Glass-Steagall regulations. You know, these are sweeping generalizations, but they're basically true. 
and you had um, the public sector getting more power. You had labor um, getting more power. Um, that was over, as we know, with the Reagan-Thatcher revolution in the 80s. And then we go pendulum, pendulum, pendulum shifting, and we get Trump perhaps as the apex of all of that. I think we are now in another pendulum shift. And I think that many of the things that we've been talking about could come to pass. And even though there are some big uh, challenges, some big dangers, I think that it's possible that with the right uh, tweaks and incentives, we could get um, a, a shift finally between capital and labor. We could get a shift between the private sector and the public sector. We could see a conversation moving from um, consumers to more talk about citizens. I think all those things are possible and um, we should come back and talk about it. And all those things are possible if there isn't a, some kind of a Trump coup, <laughs> assuming Biden actually wins the election, which it sounds like he's going to win the election, but whether that's, uh, he, I should say, it sounds like he's going to win the vote. It's not clear he's going to win the election. Anyway, thank you both very much. And uh, let's uh, schedule another one soon. Thank you, uh, Ron. Awesome. Thanks to you both, Mark. You're a rock star. Thanks. Thanks for having us, Paul. Micro celebrity. That's the term. <laughs> Okay, later. Bye. Bye. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Mm-hmm.